Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, we got a lot to cover today. A lot of good Biden news. Uh, we just saw, just came over the transom here uh, at uh, Crooked Media Global News HQ that Joe Biden called Vladimir Putin today. So we are going to dig into what they talked about, uh, the future of that complicated U.S.-Russian relationship. And then our guest today is a guy named Alexei Kovalyov, who is the investigations editor at Medusa, which is an independent Russian news outlet. And I talked to him this morning about the protests over the weekend, what the goal is, uh, why Putin responded to the allegations that he has built himself a $1 billion palace and a lot more. So we talked a lot about the Russian angle. Uh, but Ben and I are also going to talk about the fight over Biden's special envoy for Iran policy and why it's actually bigger than one staffer. I'm going to talk about some big policy moves that Biden has made on uh, domestic extremism, international sanctions, and on Liberia. We'll talk about why we're a little bummed about Biden's policy towards Venezuela and then explain why China is sanctioning former Trump administration officials, why Google might pull out of Australia, why the Italian prime minister resigned, and we'll hear some very special words from British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. So pack show today. Uh, two housekeeping things before we get to the news. First, if you want to go deep on what the Biden administration is doing on policy in these first 100 days, really the crucial first 100 days, check out our podcast, Rubicon. It's from Crooked Media Editor-in-Chief Brian Boitler. It comes out on Fridays. It's fantastic. It does a real good deep dive. You will not want to miss it. Also, don't miss a great new episode of With Friends Like These, hosted by Anna Marie Cox. This Friday, she talks with the always excellent Rebecca Traster. So subscribe to both Rubicon and With Friends Like These, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, okay, Ben, let's turn to Russia because for the last several weeks, really, we've talked about Alexei Navalny. Uh, and last week, we talked about his return to Russia and his subsequent arrest. Uh, Navalny is a Russian opposition leader. He's an anti-corruption activist. Uh, and he recently survived an assassination attempt by the Russian intelligence services. So Navalny, right before he got thrown in jail, uh, called on Russians to take to the streets in protests over the weekend. They did. We talk about those protests more later with our guests. But Ben, uh, we saw that Biden called Putin today, and I figured we could dig into this White House piece because it's complicated. So according to the White House readout of the call, Biden and Putin discussed the New START Treaty, Ukraine's sovereignty, the solar winds hack, reports about Russian bounties on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan, interference in the 2020 U.S. election, and the poisoning of Alexei Navalny. Sounds like a very fun call. Uh, it does underscore the complexity of the relationship, right? Like Biden wants to extend the New START Treaty, which is a critical arms control agreement that reduces the number of deployed U.S. and Russian nuclear weapons. He needs Putin to work with him on that. But he also needs to warn Putin when it comes to the treatment of opposition leaders, hacking, Ukraine, this bounty story. So, Ben, what did you make uh, of that set of topics? And what is your guess for over under on the duration of that phone call with that many things to cover? 
I'll start with the uh, duration. I'm going to say 90 minutes, Tommy, but uh, but maybe it was shorter because it was uh, the first one. Um, 90 is a good call. 90 is a good call. I, I'm going to... Uh, there's a few things that jumped out to me about this. Um, the first is, this is the first time that Vladimir Putin is going to hear from an American president about Russian bounties on our troops, about Alexei Navalny, period, about the solar winds hack that alone is kind of amazing <laughs> kind of astonishing to yeah. think about that like this is the first time an american president has uttered uh, those words uh to to vladimir putin um so it's you know clearly a change from what putin had before in, in trump in office um i was trying to think about like how to convey to people what it's like to be on these calls because it sounds like a pretty awkward list but the reality is with putin because he's willing to lie these calls become actually very unusual. So, for instance, I remember being on a bunch of 90-minute calls between Putin and Obama at the height of the war in Ukraine. And Obama would be laying out all our concerns about what Russia was doing in eastern Ukraine. And then Putin would give a very long speech just denying that they were even there. You know, So it's not like two people yelling at each other uh, about That's awkward terrible. topics. It's kind of about you registering your concerns and pushing through the fact that Putin in response... I bet he denied that Russia was responsible for that hack. I'm sure he denied that they put bounties on our troops, right? I'm sure he said Alexei Navalny doesn't really have any support in Russia and it's all fomented from the outside. So in a strange way, Biden has to kind of register these concerns for Putin, not expecting to like change his mind on that call, but but rather just to kind of signal to him, hey, this is what I care about. And then I think people have to understand this isn't going to be a situation where the Biden people come in and have some you know, magic elixir to, to deal with these things. Part of what they're going to have to do is spend the next few weeks getting coordinated with Europe so that we can say, OK, what can we all do together to express support for Alexei Navalny and for, for, for democratic rights inside of Russia? What can we all do to strengthen our cyber defenses and potentially consider responses to, to Russian hacks and, and this type of thing? So so Biden's not doesn't even currently you know, have the playbook developed in terms of what exactly he's going to do on all these issues. The job in this call is to like set down some markers. This is what I care about. This is the kind of thing where there are going to be consequences and then spend the next few weeks, not just developing those internally, but with allies figuring out like what is a coordinated approach uh, that, that can be taken to Russia. So, um, you know, this is the beginning of the story, <laughs> this phone call, nowhere near uh, even the, the end of the beginning. Yeah, that that's right. It's also interesting that the the Russian bounties issue came up because there is a swath of people, mostly on the left, uh, online, that is seeming to convince themselves that that Russian bounty story was not accurate, that it was walked back by the Trump administration, even though Mike Pompeo said he raised it with his Russian counterpart, I believe. So it was interesting that Biden raised that at the highest level on the first phone call seems to suggest that that evidence actually was pretty solid or else why waste your time? That's exactly right. Like, so Biden has had access to the intelligence for a week now. And, you know, the people who came out and denied it from the Trump administration were kind of the far end MAGA hacks, you know, dead enders types, not the career people. The career people always suggested that this intelligence was true. And the fact that he raised it shows you that Joe Biden has looked at the intelligence on both the hack and the bounties and concluded that this is true. And I have to raise it with Vladimir Putin. So there, there is, yeah. you're right, there's a, a message in, 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 in that readout. Interesting. Well, I'm not the last time we'll uh, we'll hear about this relationship, and hopefully there is some movement on the New Start Treaty because 
Uh, it would be bad to let that thing lapse after the Trump administration has ripped up uh, as many arms control treaties as possible over the last couple of years. Um, so let's turn to Iran, Ben, because there's been this a proxy battle broken out uh, over President Biden's Iran policy. And it seems to signal that all those critics that you know were attacking President Obama and attacking you personally over the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement, are eager to refight that battle. So the dust up here starts with a report in the Jewish Insider that uh, that said a guy named Rob Malley is being considered for the position of special envoy for Iran policy by Biden's team. Rob Malley is a, a seasoned expert on Middle East policy. He's been on this show actually back in 2017. Uh, he worked for President Obama uh, and President Clinton on the national security staff, and he has a particular expertise working on Arab-Israeli peace and counter-ISIS policy. And so once this news leaked, you know, a lot of people came out and said, like, that's a great choice, right? He's an expert on the Middle East. Uh, he understands the strengths and weaknesses of the Iran deal. Uh, Mali is tight with Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, the incoming Secretary of State and National Security Advisor. And Ben, this anecdote uh, made me laugh. I guess in the mid-2000s, Mali played on an indoor soccer team with Congressman Tom Malinowski and Tony Blinken, and they won the league championship in 2005, so good for them. But <laughs> You know, opponents of the deal saw this report and they immediately started going after Mali because he is in favor of the U.S. engaging in talks with their adversaries, including Iran. And because Mali criticized Trump and Mike Pompeo and their approach to Iran, uh, Senator Tom Cotton, who is best known for wanting to deploy U.S. troops against peaceful protesters in the U.S. and for sending letters to Iran, trying to undercut Obama's foreign policy, said, quote, the Ayatollahs wouldn't believe their luck if he is selected, he being Mali. So, Ben, you know Rob Mali well. Uh, you have been vocal about why you think he would be good at this job. Why do you think Rob Mali is the right fit? And, and what are the broader stakes of this fight over this position? Yeah, so, you know, Rob was at the White House in the second term, and he was the lead NSC staffer with responsibility for Iran when we completed the Iran deal. And he attended the talks, right? So uh, Rob was the White House diplomat in the negotiations with Iran. And, and so first and foremost, this is a guy who literally was present at the creation of the Iran nuclear agreement and has relationships with all the key players, the Iranians, uh, including the Iranian foreign minister, uh, Javad Zarif, the Europeans, uh, who Rob has, I know, been in touch with even the last several years, um, the Russians, who we were just talking about, like Rob knows the people, knows the issues, can clearly step in and be an effective envoy right away without having to mm -hmm. burn time just kind of getting to know folks, right? So right, getting up to speed, yeah. his qualifications are, are unquestionable for this job, right? Uh, he's also just, I think, honestly, you know, for progressives, um, you know, Rob Malley is someone who's willing to challenge convention, right? He's, you know, he's, he's, a truly committed diplomat who's been he's gotten himself into you know political hot water in the past because he's been willing to do things like meet with Hamas to you know uh, around Middle East peace type issues not because he agrees with these people though this is the thing that drives me crazy not because he somehow agrees with the Iranians or or certain Palestinian factions but because you make diplomacy with adversaries. You make diplomacy not just with your friends. Like Rob is the kind of guy who understands that diplomacy requires you to get in the room with whoever is necessary to to advance American interests, to advance you know the the broader interests of, of of peace, and 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 the the that that reason for his qualification is also the reason that critics don't like him there. 
you know, like the reason the critics don't want Rob in this job is they don't like diplomacy to begin with. They know that Rob is more likely to succeed in getting us back into an Iran nuclear deal. That's what these critics don't want. <laughs> so it's, right. a, it's a proxy for everything in part because they want to send a warning shot about who gets to, to sign off on Joe Biden's Iran policy. You would think that it'd be normal that Joe Biden got elected on a platform of returning to the Iran nuclear deal and would pick an envoy who helped negotiate that nuclear deal. That's the normal consequence that you would expect from elections. But I think this right wing noise machine in Congress with people like Tom Cotton, this external pressure that's inevitable to come from the Israeli government and the governments of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, who have a lot of influence in Washington, is intended to send a message that if you don't do what we want on Iran policy, we're going to try to extract a political cost to you. We're going to create political headaches for you. We're going to we're going to heap criticism and demonize individuals in your administration. They're trying to send a message out of the gate that essentially you have to give us a veto on who you appoint. And we know that it may not be, you know, Tom Cotton's choice who can be the Iran envoy, but Tom Cotton's trying to send a message that it can't be your choice either. It can be Rob Malley. Let's get right. some milk toast person in there who, who we know is like less likely to succeed. That's because that's what Tom Cotton's ultimate interest in is. So it's like a, it, it, it's a proxy for the whole, whole the freedom of movement that Joe Biden has on his Iran policy. And 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 that's why I think it's really important for progressives to raise our voices in support of Rob Malley, because it's both about a decent guy who's be good at the job. It's also about whether or not Joe Biden is able to have political space to do what he wants to do on Iran. Yeah, very well said. And I also would highly, highly recommend people read a piece by Peter Beinart about Rob Malley and the stakes of this fight, because he talks about how Malley has this like family history and experience uh, being the son of an Arab Jew born in Egypt with roots in Syria. Rob Malley covered the war in Algeria as a journalist, right? So he saw the brutality of colonialism up close, and that's something we talk about enough, I think, in, in U.S. foreign policy. Malley's other sin in the eyes of his critics was that he worked on the Camp David Accords in 2000, and he later dared to uh, go against the orthodoxy that that deal fell apart only because of the Palestinians, that no one else was at fault. And, um, you know, Peter had this great paragraph at the end where he talked about this pick and he said, it constitutes a test of whether someone who sees beyond the smug and blinkered narrative that dominates Beltway discourse and tries to elevate the voices of people who Washington policymakers often ignore, like Palestinians, can win an important job in even a democratic administration. Ambitious young wonks will take notes and adjust their behavior accordingly. I thought that was really, really well said. That's so right. And, and, and because if the message is the only way to get ahead, the only way to get jobs like this in foreign policy is to never be controversial, <laughs> you know, to, to never explore ways of challenging convention or never get in rooms with people that might be held against you in the future, you're going to get a very watered down version of people in all these positions, right? Which is what Tom Cotton wants, you know, he wants kind of uh, like a, a Democratic Party that is afraid of its own shadow on national security and, and afraid to push the envelope. Uh, I think the other piece of this that's worth highlighting, like Brett Stevens, uh, who we haven't had to talk about in a while since like, you know, he got <laughs> forgot about him. so enraged about you know, some bed bug issue. I don't even remember what it was exactly. But he had a column this morning that's another narrative you see against Rob, which is that Rob is somehow doesn't care about human rights in Iran because, you know, he talks to the Ayatollahs and, and, and a human rights policy, you know, anyone who cares about dissidents in other countries should reject Rob Malley. And that is such utter, complete bullshit because, frankly, Rob has used diplomacy to try to free hostages in other countries. 
the last few years, Rob has been running the International Crisis Group, which is an amazing organization. People should check out their website if you want to know kind of the, the nuts and bolts of conflicts around the world. But they lobby for civilian protection. And, you know, it, it, Rob's had employees who had been detained in China. And Rob has been standing up to the Chinese government to try to free these people. So, uh, again, this this co-opting of the language of human rights by the, the, the far right to to demonize people interested in diplomacy is something we've seen time and again. And, and we shouldn't allow that to work either. You know, the because Rob gauges in diplomacy with unsavory actors doesn't mean he doesn't care about human rights. It means that he believes that the way you advance human rights is by engaging in diplomacy, you know? Right, right. And, and by the way, most Iranian human rights activists uh, would, would tell you the same thing. That's why there was a lot of support in that, that community for the Iran nuclear agreement, because they, they felt like connectivity to the outside world was ultimately going to improve the human rights circumstances in Iran rather than the status quo, which has been horrendous. Well, we, uh, we, we will keep an eye on this. We hope that they, uh, the, the Biden team stays tough and that they put uh, Mali forward for this position. So uh, we're going to get into a bunch of really good stuff that Joe Biden has done on foreign policy in a bit. But there's uh, one area that was a little disappointing that I wanted to talk about, Ben. Uh, so this came up during Tony Blinken's confirmation hearing for Secretary of State. He said that the Biden administration would continue to recognize Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela. So just a little backstory here for folks who forget. In January of 2018, uh, Venezuela's National Assembly declared that Juan Guaido was the acting president of Venezuela. At the same time, the Trump administration led this big diplomatic effort to try to get other countries to recognize Juan Guaido as president and not Nicolas Maduro. Trump even invited Guaido to be his guest at the State of the Union. So all those machinations came after this 2018 presidential election in Venezuela, where Maduro was reelected, but his opponents and a lot of international observers said it was flawed, it was irregular, and it was illegitimate. So also at this hearing, Tony went on to say that President Biden wants to more effectively target sanctions on Venezuela. It's obviously a good thing. And promote a policy that leads to free and fair elections. I think everyone would agree that's a good thing, too. For his part, Maduro says he's willing to, quote, walk a new path in our relations with Joe Biden's government based on mutual respect, dialogue, communication and understanding. So, Ben, you know, this effort to install Juan Guaido as president uh, of Venezuela predates Biden. Trump did like everything he could short of invasion to oust Maduro. Right. They put on countless economic sanctions. They had an oil embargo on Venezuela during a fucking pandemic, just like an evil thing you could do. It failed miserably. The net effect of Maduro's bad leadership uh, and these efforts to oust him has been to just decimate Venezuela's economy and really hurt the people. What do you think the right move is here? Like, how do you signal a break from Trump's failed regime change strategy without inadvertently helping Maduro and, and you know, impeding your ultimate goal of a free and fair election? I know this is like the hardest question ever, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah. And, and look, I think I, I understand why Tony in that context, you know, he's not going to rescind this formal diplomatic recognition the United States has offered. I, I think what was what was somewhat disappointing and it's the kind of thing that has to be watched in terms of where they go after Tony's confirmed is whether or not there's an indication that that the current approach is not working. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like you cannot rescind uh, the the recognition of Guaido while still acknowledging like this policy has not been working. And to yeah. pretend like, oh, just more sanctions and a slightly smarter implementation of this failed strategy is somehow going to lead anywhere but the status quo, that, that I think would be the thing that, that would trouble me. I think what they because what they need to do is, first of all, just kind of hit the pause button here and kind of go around and talk to all our partners in Latin America 
and talk to all the people in Europe who are invested in this issue as well and hear them out on, on what's going on. What's the dynamic inside of Venezuela? What's the dynamic in the opposition? What's the dynamic in the regime? What, by the way, is the degree of Chinese and Russian influence with Maduro too? They just have to kind of understand what the playing field is. And at the same time, I think be signaling more so probably than Tony did in his hearing, like we're open to any diplomacy that can lead to a free and fair election. You know, like we're not abandoning the democratic principle here that, that Venezuelans have to choose their leader, but but that essentially we're open to negotiating with the government and the opposition with Juan Guaido and Maduro's people, different possible transitional governments that could lead to an election, you know, just a, an ability to start over diplomatically rather than locking yourself into a policy of we recognize Guaido and we sanction them. That policy is not going to work. Uh, and, and I think the reason people you know, are, would be somewhat concerned about this is, as with the Iran policy, there are political forces in the United States that want to make sure that on Cuba and Venezuela, Biden takes a harder line than where the Democratic Party would naturally go. Right. Uh, and if you look at it's not just from the Republican Party and obviously that did very well with Cuban-Americans in Florida. Bob Menendez, Senator Bob Menendez, is the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He is the most hardline Democrat on all these issues. You know, he's a very hardline anti-Cuba, anti-Maduro guy. And the temptation for the administration may be, we don't want to piss off this Democratic chairman, who's, by the way, going to confirm all of our nominees. And we we don't want a, a political headache from the, uh, you know, hardline Cuban-American community. So we'll just kind of keep doing a, a softer version of what Trump was doing. And, and I just think that that that's just going to lead you to not only is that the wrong approach for the issues and the wrong approach for the people who live in Cuba and Venezuela, I, I think that ultimately you're going to have to pivot anyway. So why not start at the beginning of your administration? Yeah. To your point, to be fair to Tony, this is enormously complicated. Maduro has done an absolutely abysmal job leading the country. The election was seen by many people as illegitimate. Regardless, the results are people in horrific poverty, hospitals that don't have power, let alone like yeah. gauze or, or critical medical supplies, people starving to death. Um, obviously, like some sort of change is needed. I, I do think, you know, signaling some sort of break from what was an overt re regime change strategy to the point where John Bolton That's wrote right. 5,000 troops to Colombia <laughs> on a notepad and basically held it up for yeah. reporters. Like, you know, th there's sort of a, a middle ground in there. That's a sweet spot that like my, I'm not smart enough That's to right. figure out, but Tony is. But, but that didn't work. I mean, there has to be, and this is a really key thing, the links both Iran and Venezuela, the Trump people will argue that somehow this was working, that like, right. quote unquote, maximum pressure on Iran is working. So we just have to continue it because you have all this leverage that you're recognizing Guaido is this bold stroke, you know, and Maduro's constantly, you know, they cast him as on the ropes. It's not working in other places. Like the Iranians right. are developing their nuclear program. Maduro is more entrenched today than the day that they recognize Juan Guaido. Like, it's not working. And so you're right. Like, Tony needs to have all the running room he he, he needs uh, to, to formulate new approaches. But the one thing I think we should hold them a, to account on is to not let political gravity drag them into kind of em, em, embracing or at least enabling these narratives that somehow the, this pressure track approach on, on these issues was somehow yielding results. Right, right. And, and you know, I think... Uh, Critics of this policy, critics of the Democratic Party would point to the fact that Juan Guaido got like a standing ovation from Democrats and Republicans at the State of the Union. Yeah. So it seemed like it was a a bipartisan support for 
you know, regime change, which is not a signal we should be sending probably to Latin America, given our history of doing terrible things in the region, full stop. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and, and if the world looks at it cynically, if they think, and the Democrats are doing that, not because they believe it, but because they're afraid of some politics. And yeah, they're afraid of Marco that, Rubio, a, yeah. Yeah, that's not a reason to, to do that. No, that's not a reason to toy with people's lives. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Okay, uh, so some good news from the Biden folks. First of all, over the last few months, you guys have heard Ben and I gnash our teeth about like 11th hour attempts by the Trump administration to install loyalists in different parts of the government. Uh, the concern was it might be hard for Biden to get rid of some of them or that he might hesitate to get rid of some of them. Good news, everybody. The Biden is just cleaning house. So some examples here. Yeah. First, uh, the Trump team tried to install a top lawyer at the NSA, the National Security Agency. Biden's folks put him on administrative leave on day two. So that guy is basically iced out. Then the Biden team fired officials installed by Trump at the Voice of America and at the U.S. Agency for Global Media. Uh, that's, I think, been you know a bigger deal. Can you remind listeners why those entities are important and what they do and, and why, you know, You've really been focused on this. We should, by the way, give credit to um, David Fulkenflick at, at NPR, who's been covering yeah. this story like nobody's Great. business. Yeah. Uh, so really important stuff there and grateful for that reporting. Yeah, I, I, he's been great. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that the Biden people are taking this approach rather than risking you know, sabotage from within. I, I, I think that the, the, for the USAGM, people may have heard of the Broadcasting Board of Governors, the BBG. That's what this kind of used to be called. And essentially, it's the umbrella that's over about a billion dollars worth of U.S. government broadcasting. So the Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Asia, often in places, those are like the straight news sources. It's like the wire news service that just gives people the news in countries where they don't have access to objective right, media. Right. In, in some cases, and then that's mainly what it is. Um, but in, in some cases, it's you know the capacity of the United States to to reach audiences in different languages and, um, and and to try to you know uh, essentially represent what independent media is supposed to look like. And so there's been a firewall between you know when I was in government, technically I had responsibility for this portfolio in terms of the budgeting and the personnel, but I had no ability to tell them what to do. Like there's a fi a legal firewall that says that the that this can essentially become a propaganda organ of the of the U.S. government. 
Well, what Trump did is when he finally figured out or someone there figured out that they had all this broadcasting, this basically this media enterprise within the US government, they just put in some hardline hackish loyalists yep. who were clearly going to set about like purging the place of any independent journalism and kind of turn it into like some MAGA broadcasting outfit, like a OAN on a global scale. Mike Pompeo, like, uh, I think, pushed out a reporter who dared to ask him a tough question. Like they were like punishing yeah. reporters in yeah. real time. Yeah, and you and I, because you and I dealt with VOA reporters, and yeah. it was just like dealing with other reporters. Right, you know, like they, um, you didn't expect them to ask you nice questions no. or to to propagandize the Mike Pompeo for president message, which I'm sure VOA was doing. And and I think what happened, Tommy, is like the Biden people went in during transition, you know, and were able to take a look at just what is going on in this place, what is the morale, what have these people been told to do, and clearly whatever they saw was sufficiently alarming yeah. <laughs> that they were like. The trans- and this is why transition is useful because those yeah. people can come back and be like, this place is, is a fucking mess, you know? And and clearly they were sufficiently alarmed by what the agenda was at that place that they they felt like we can't even let these people stay in their offices for a couple of weeks. We got, you know, and that, that tells you how big the bullet is that we dodged. Yeah, big time. Uh, and, and good for the Biden team for moving quickly and just getting this done. Um, I'm going to do a quick like roundup, Ben, of some notable foreign policy news from the Biden folks, and you can just respond to any part of it. So first, uh, President Biden has asked the director of national intelligence, our friend of Real Haynes, to pull together a comprehensive assessment of the threat from domestic violent extremism. Uh, if the attack on the Capitol on January 6th bothered you, this is good news. They're also going to build out a team within the National Security Council to review what's currently being done. Second, uh, Biden's team announced it's going to review existing U.S. and multilateral financial sanctions and see whether those sanctions are hindering efforts to respond to the coronavirus pandemic. This is a big deal. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar has been leading the charge to take another look at these sanctions and see how they might be hurting people, especially in places like Iran and Venezuela, like we were just talking about. So this is a big deal. Uh, Third, Biden repealed Trump's ban on transgender people serving in the U.S. military. It was bigoted. It was cruel. It's awful. Glad it's gone. Lastly, Biden released an order that would protect people who were forced to free Liberia back in the early 90s uh, to protect them from deportation. Basically, these Liberians came to seek asylum in the U.S. and they were temporarily protected by President Bush and then President Obama. And then because he is a racist, President Trump basically started a process that would have sent thousands of Liberians uh, back home, even though they no longer live there or hadn't been there for decades. So Ben, no real common thread for those items besides the fact that elections matter. Those are really good, important things. Uh, and please, you know, jump in on any part of this. Well, I, I guess the only common thread you can identify is that they all basically are responding to the kind of inhumanity or insanity of of Trump, right? Mm-hmm. So domestic extremism, there was no evaluation of the threat because Trump was unwilling to look at the yeah. extremist aspects of his own base. You know, the, the the use of immigration policy to punish people, common thread, the, the, the not caring that sanctions are potentially killing people. So this shows what it looks like when the US government has to arrange itself once again around facts and around caring about human beings. Yep. Um, I think on the domestic extremism piece, we touched on this a little bit. I think people need to let, let's see what they come up with before we freak out about the construction of some new war on terror framework. We need to know the facts. We need this kind of analysis of who are these groups? How organized are they? You know, what, what are their ambitions? You know, just, just gathering that information will then allow you to make decisions about what, what kind of policies flow from that. And I do want to say just on the sanctions piece, I, you know, finding carve outs for for medical and humanitarian purposes in places like Iran and Venezuela can both be very important 
and just saving lives in a COVID context, but also with the new administration can create an environment for diplomacy to potentially get get a footing. You know, like, okay, we can't agree on just about anything, but we can agree on just trying to save lives of people who are at risk from COVID. So, so I think this is all positive and it all, you know, it all is what a normal, well-meaning administration would look like at the beginning. Yeah. And, you know, so on this piece you mentioned about the the concerns that are understandable about, you know, the, constructing a new war on terror that's domestically focused. I, I did some calls around to various offices of people that would be a part of this. And, and my takeaway was that, you know, their focus is th- they really want to coordinate with the Biden team. They want to figure out what's necessary. They want to talk to the ACLUs of the world. They want to think as narrowly as possible to make sure that there are these law enforcement tools. But like, I think everybody is quite mindful of the mistakes that were made after 9-11. This isn't like Jim Sensenbrenner dumping a 2000 page, you know, Patriot Act on, on, you know, a desk and saying, vote for this before you read it. I think this is a, a process that would be incredibly deliberate to figure out, okay, what are we prioritizing? Where are the resources focused? What is missing? Then let's move very slowly and have hearings and really vet these things before moving forward. So that made me feel a little better. Yeah, the scrutiny should be there, but this process allows for the scrutiny to happen. Right. And to your point, after 9-11, they just gave them every authority that they could possibly imagine having through the Patriot Act. This is more like, hey, let's understand this threat and then let's have a debate about what new tools or authorities we need. And as long as that process is kind of transparent and deliberative, um, you know, I that's the right way to go about doing it. Trust but verify, you know, like that's a good Trust thing. Trust like Just because people are well-meaning doesn't mean they can't, you know, uh, end up trying to push too far. So it's good that that the groups are energized. Yeah, no, and it's good. It's good that there will be push and pull, and there will be people like Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar and AOC saying, "Hell no, we're, we don't need new authorities. We have this debate and do it publicly." Um, let's talk about China for a minute, Ben, because like minutes after Joe Biden was sworn into office, the Chinese government uh, announced that they're imposing sanctions on 28 former Trump administration officials, including <laughs> some of our favorites, Mike Pompeo. Uh, the former national security advisors, Robert O'Brien and John Bolton, the trade advisor, Peter Navarro, and then the multiple uh, collared shirt enthusiast, Steve Bannon. So this press release from the Chinese foreign ministry was colorful. It said these individuals showed, quote, prejudice and hatred against China and have, quote, planned, promoted and executed a series of crazy moves which have gravely interfered in China's internal affairs, offended the Chinese people and seriously disrupted China-U.S. relations, end quote. What this means in practice is that the individuals named here and their families can't visit China, Hong Kong or Macau. uh, And they and then companies or institutions associated with them are restricted from doing business in China. So, you know, Ben, John Bolton is like tweeting about how this is a great thing and it's views it as a badge of honor. I imagine that Mike Pompeo will make it part of his future stump speech when he runs for president to show how tough he is on China. I do wonder how this business provision works and whether it might make companies think twice about putting some of these folks on like their board of directors, for example. But, oh, you know, Ben, you no question. You were sanctioned by the Russian government uh, on your <laughs> yeah. way out the door uh, in the Obama years. Any tips for uh, Bolton and, and Bannon and the gang for for what's going to happen? No, I got the same like full sanction. Um, Can you tell and, that and, tell that and, story? 
Uh, well, I was actually in the first list of uh, so w- when we had sanctioned some Russians, the Russians uh, reciprocated in 2014 around Crimea and Ukraine, and I was in the first tranche of like the eight Americans who were sanctioned. You know, travel ban put on me. Uh, you know, my uh, my my ability to access the ruble. You know, which is <laughs> I don't have any investments in Russia. It's funny though. At the time, I asked McFall, who I think was still our ambassador. Uh, why I was on this list. Like, what did I do? You know, because it, it was like John McCain too. And like, it was this, this kind of random group of people. And he said that they had paired me with someone that we had sanctioned on the Russian side, this guy, Surkov, who is kind of the master propagandist, you know, nice. uh, for for Putin. And I, I, I don't know if that's true or not. It was just like Mike's guess. But like, it was kind of funny that the Ru- Russians had me slotted the same way that like some Republicans did, like this, <laughs> this powerful manager of like, information and echo chambers, which, as you know, like, if only we were that <laughs> capable in the communications office. But look, to me, I, here's what's interesting about it, is that the, the, first of all, yes, you're right, this is far more consequential than a Russian sanction, because the Chinese economy touches a lot of things, and, and the American corporate sector is all tied up in, in, in China. So you're right. I mean, it'd be interesting to watch, like, board appointments and things like that, because ultimately, those companies' relationships with China um, are more important than the, you know, potentially their relationship with like John Bolton or something. Which, by the way, is bad. I mean, I, I, you know, I, yeah. I, I'm not siding with the Chinese on this one no, here. No, I, no. I, you know, like the Chinese leveraging U.S. businesses to kind of shape who is a part of their community, even if it's someone like Mike Pompeo who I dis- d- d- detest. Like he should have that right. I, I will say what's interesting about the Chinese is that. They're leaving themselves some wiggle room here to both reciprocate for some Trump sanctions without, you know, while trying to contain it to the past. So Trump had sanctioned a whole bunch of Chinese officials. The Chinese doctrine mentality is we must sanction some people in response that like we can't just sit here and take your sanctions without a response. The fact that they waited until after the new administration was you know, inaugurated and then immediately sanctioned a bunch of people who are already out of government. I actually took as as a you know controlled escalation, if you will. Hmm. You know that that they were they were trying to kind of reciprocate, while then allowing it to stop there and let's all move on, rather than trying to have some consequential impact on say the American economy through who they're sanctioning or current officials, you know, rather than just former ones. So so I, I thought it was a kind of subtle message from the Chinese of. Yeah, we're reciprocating, but we don't want this to continue. You Interesting. Know? Yeah. Like, well, uh, and now balls in the Biden's court. Like impeaching know? a former president. Balls in the Biden's court, that is for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to, to about uh, Australia and Google for a minute. So Google is threatening to pull out of the Australian market, and here is why. The Australian government put forward a law that could force technology companies like Facebook, like Google, to make commercial agreements with news outlets and then pay them to show their content. Seems like an obvious idea. Uh, Google, though, says this law would be unworkable and that it would force the company to basically leave the Australian market. They'd be stuck with Bing or whatever. Uh, Facebook has said that the law might end up forcing them to block news content on your news feed if you live in Australia. So, Ben, I, I don't know exactly what to make of this. I don't know if this is the right solution for Australia specifically. Some people have pointed out that uh, forcing these payments could disproportionately affect Rupert Murdoch because he owns so much of the media in Australia. That said, I do like the idea 
of governments telling these big internet companies, hey, yeah. you are part of why the news media industry has been decimated. Yeah. You are spreading disinformation. You're going to help fix those problems. Like Google recently helped agree to pay French publishers to license some of their content. This is under a pilot program they've launched where they're trying to, I don't know, fix these relationships with publishers. So maybe there's some path forward here. Like I don't know. What do you make of this proposal? Well, yeah, not, not only has Google and Facebook obviously turbocharged disinformation, you know, they, they've also cannibalized traditional media because they get all the ad revenue right. for the content that is created by you know, th- newspapers and, you know, television media. Like think about how it used to be. You'd, you'd, you'd buy a newspaper and if there was an ad associated with an article in that newspaper or you look at it online, you'd see it on the website of that news outlet. Google you know, or Facebook, they just wanted to drive all the ad revenue to their platforms. So all these issues are kind of connected. And I'm not sure that the Australia policy is the right one. I think what's happening, though, that's very healthy is there's pressure coming at the tech companies from all different directions, yep. right? Yep. There's pressure on the hate speech that you're disseminating. There's pressure on the disinformation and how you allow yourself to be manipulated by Russia or whomever. There's pressure on how much you're cannibalizing media. There's pressure on privacy. And and already the companies are responding, and not most prominently, obviously, Twitter taking down Trump. The answer has to be regulation. But I think that the more the, the governments that share these concerns, so you know, generally the democratic governments, are, are trying to develop common ideas and common areas of concern that they're articulating in the companies, the, the better this will go. So, so in Australia, it gets together the New Zealand and US and Europe and Japan and, and other countries that are, are, are focused on this and just try to you know, begin to correct you know, how messed up big tech is. Yeah. You know, it, it, maybe they, you try to compel them to do it voluntarily, but if not, there's some form of regulation that could be cross borders. Yeah. It does seem like the EU might be coordinating uh, some sort of effort here too. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the EU, totally. um, Italy's prime minister, Giuseppe Conte has resigned from his position. It is not clear sort of based on how the Italian government system works, he could try to form a new governing coalition and basically get his job back in a couple of days. Someone else could try to form a coalition and, and take over the prime minister job, or they could call a snap election. But, you know, Conte was in power for like 17 months. Uh, his governing coalition fractured over disagreements about how to spend this big pot of money, about I think 250 billion-ish worth of funds from the European Union to help them recover from the coronavirus. So, you know, Beth, the, the timing here is really bad. Italy got crushed by the coronavirus early. Their vaccination rollout has been slow. Uh, holding up a snap election in a pandemic seems like a really bad idea, uh, but also so is delaying like efforts to help fix their economy and help it recover. I don't really have strong opinions on Conte. He's been described as like a technocratic populist, but there is a, a real concern that if there's an election in Italy, the most likely winner would be a far-right wing coalition led by this party, the League, which is pretty vile. So that's something I think we need to watch here. I mean, I think the hope is that Conte will be able to cobble together another moderate coalition and and, and resume the job. But, you know, it would not be great to see, you know, pseudo-fascist parties in charge of Italy. Yeah, totally. I mean, Conte kind of stabilized things, um, you know, because it had been drifting in the direction of the far right. Um, and, and Conte kind of stabilizing as this consensus technocrat, which may not fix the structural problems in Italy, but frankly, when you're dealing with COVID and you've got this threat of like far right, you know, uh, you know, uh, populism slash nationalism, you, you take that. So I, I think that the main thing you're voting for here, or rooting for, 
is that, yeah, you don't see Italy tip far to the right, that there's enough of some new coalition that can emerge from the next election that that they can kind of weather these storms. At a certain point, Italy is going to have to you know, really go through some political regeneration here uh, because so much of the energy has flowed to the right and the left has kind of been fractured against itself. But for now, I think we're rooting for like a stable you know, outcome that doesn't tip the place over. Yeah. I mean, I think Italy has been in basically constant political turmoil since World War II. So, you know, it, it must be incredibly <laughs> frustrating for uh, the people there. You know, they've reeling since the financial crisis through COVID, tough times, but hopefully they can get it together. Um, finally, Ben, I just want to close before we get to the interview uh, with a bit of audio from our friend, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Let's play the clip. Do you think, as some senior politicians in Britain seem to, that President Biden is woke? I've, I can't comment on that. But what I know is that he's a fervent believer in the transatlantic uh, alliance, and um, uh, and that's a great thing, and a believer in uh, a lot of the things that uh, we want to achieve together. And, you know, insofar as um, nothing wrong with being being woke if uh, but i what i can tell you is that uh, i think that it's it's very very important for uh everybody uh to and I, certainly i i will put myself in the category of people who believe that uh it's important to stick up for your uh your history or your 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 traditions and uh thing and your uh your your values and things you believe in <laughs> it's, uh, you, you rarely hear a, a politician that that deaf, that light on their feet, you know, silver tongued there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, not woke. Uh, I, I mean, this is the country that brought us like the Beatles and the Stones and like, you know, punk and, you know, the, the Clash. And like, what is happening here? You know, it's like, it, like they, they used to be a little more woke over there. I, I would love to know who asked that question, too, because like it just felt like he was sneering. And suggesting yeah, yeah. that being Joe Biden, being progressive, caring about people of other races, sort of being conscious of things yeah, he says and yeah. does is, is a bad thing. You're going to ask Boris Johnson that, someone who uh, who said that Barack Obama's colonial heritage was was holding back yeah. the alliance. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I will say that the kind of obsession with like wokeness and cancel culture is like much more of a thing on the right than yeah. <laughs> among like actual progressives but yeah boris johnson like is not someone i mean uh yeah we'll never forget his 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 views on the roots of barack obama's feelings on issues like brexit being tied to to the fact that he was of kenyan heritage yeah well the good news is you know joe biden and uh, uh johnson talked on the phone the other day i think the the relationship will endure they'll try to work out it will a be special deal. it will always be special it will always, it will be, special. always be special okay when we come back we'll have my conversation with alexei kovalyov about the protests in russia uh alexei navalny and what's next for vladimir putin so stick around Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. (laughs) 
I am very excited to welcome uh, my guest today all the way from Russia. Alexei Kovalyov is the investigations editor at Medusa, an independent Russian news outlet. Alexei, it's great to see you. Uh, hi there. So we've been talking a lot uh, about Alexei Navalny on this show. Uh, listeners by now are familiar with um, you know, his poisoning, his return to Russia from Germany, uh, and then his call for protests over the weekend. Can you just start by describing, you know, what those protests were like this weekend. We saw a lot of clips on social media. Uh, there were clips of people pegging police with with snowballs uh, that looked you know, different than what we'd seen before. But h- how are they different or not different from past protests you've seen? Uh, well, they were they were quite, quite different in, in spirit. I mean, in the past, they were uh, usually uh, the, the people, uh, mostly Alexei Navalny supporters, would at least seek some sort of uh, permit or authorization uh, mm-hmm. from the city government. Uh, but not this time. This time nobody even bothered to, uh, uh, to obtain one uh, because we are at, at, a, at a stage where, uh, where Navalny, uh, previously considered as an enemy of the state, uh, to whom at least some rules of engagement still applied, he's now been elevated to the status of a traitor. And a, mm-hmm. a national trader by the propaganda, a foreign agent, and uh, no rules, uh, no, no rule of, of law applies to him uh, uh, except the laws that they use to prosecute him. And his supporters and his allies are seen as co-conspirators. Uh, so it's pointless to even engage uh, with the state to uh, to obtain some authorization. Uh, so this time they didn't even bother, and people just came out. It's really hard to um, uh, to estimate how many, uh, because normally uh, uh, in Moscow, uh, if if this if a protest is sanctioned by the government, uh, it's normally confined to a uh, to a square or or wide uh, avenue uh, mm-hmm. in downtown where they where these kind of ki- kinds of rallies usually uh, take place, and there it's pretty easy to say, okay, this is this is like. Uh, you can look at a crowd and say, okay, this is 20,000 people or this is 50,000 people. Uh, but now uh, most of these, uh, it, it wasn't a single crowd. It was just uh, groups of people wandering throughout the city. So estimates, right. uh, estimates vary from uh, uh, the police's own figure. It was 4,000 uh, people, but it was clear, clearly much more than that. Uh, so the highest estimate was about... 40,000 people, but it's really hard to say. Uh, but Navalny's people are saying that uh, uh, no fewer than 20, uh, uh, 250,000 people uh, came out across all of Russia, wow. uh, which seems to be, uh, uh, well, it might be a little too high, uh, but it's not, not, not too, uh, 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 but not too much because we've seen footage yeah. from uh, places where uh, people literally came out to protest for the second time or first time in the history of this uh, of this little town, and there were incredible uh, footage and images of people coming out to protest in places like Yakutsk, where temperatures dropped below six uh, minus sixty Fahrenheit. That's amazing. <laughs> Truly, uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing. But uh, there are a lot of places uh, uh, in Russia, like uh, places in Siberia, where right, uh, right, uh, yeah, it's what it's yeah, where it's, where it's well below minus forty. Um, Oof. 
Yeah. Uh, and, no, and, no, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> you had a great piece in the New York Times today, uh, mm-hmm. Tuesday, that I, I thought was fascinating that everyone should go read. And it, But in that piece you wrote, uh, it would be foolish to think that the protests are going to lead to significant political changes or concessions from the state. If anything, they will probably lead to more criminal cases and more repressive laws. Curious why you, why you think that's the case. Uh, and if so, what Navalny's strategy is here? Like, wh- what is the end game for these protests if you think it could actually make the situation worse? Um, okay, so here's the thing. Uh, uh, in Russia, demanding something from the, from the state or cornering it never yields the result you want to. Because if you demand, if you demand a stop to corruption, for example, uh, you'll get more corruption. Uh, so as to, uh, for example, uh, this, uh, this is usually what happens with uh, Navalny's investigation into uh, uh, corruption at the highest level of the, of the Russian government. If he credibly accuses an official of, of corruption, uh, he is never uh, fired or demoted. More than that, he's often promoted. <laughs> or uh, if, the char- if the charges are really, really serious, it's going to take, for, for example, uh, in a year or so, he'll be quietly transferred to a different department, for example. So, right. as, not, so right. as not to create a... a a feedback between a demand and uh, uh, so as not to for for uh, for, for uh, so as not the state is not seen as caving into to to popular demands because Got the it. state the government the, the Putin doesn't want to be seen as weak uh, as caving in to demand so it works uh, you know there's a there's kind of a negative feedback loop there. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, so. Uh, 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 what is the uh, what is Navalny uh, Navalny's end game? It's up, upping the ante. He's pretty similar to uh, to Putin in that respect because uh, he's he often does things that are uh, uh, almost seen as suicidal. Uh, and uh, the, his latest move, like going to Russia, despite all the threats that he will be jailed, and he was indeed uh, arrested. And uh, uh, there's this uh, there's this uh, quite uh, serious. Uh, risk that he will be jailed for a lot longer than 30 days, the, the, the term that he's currently serving. Uh, but he's a risk taker like Putin. Uh, yeah. And, and yeah. The, the moves he's making are, uh, can, be, uh, ca- can be seen uh, outside of his, his logic as self-destructive. For example, uh, in 2016, when uh, Russian hackers interfered uh, in, in the US elections, it didn't bring any uh, any positive result? We didn't get anything from it. Uh, uh, you know, if the uh, if if the end game was installing a friendly president who would do Russia's bidding, that never happened. You know, if anything, we got more sanctions uh, right uh, than that. But that's uh, th- that's uh, well within uh, also Putin's logic of always uh, upping upping the an- ante and again punching well right. above your punching well above your weight. So Navalny and Putin are pretty similar in, in that respect, and that they're risk takers. Yeah. Well, speaking of the upping the ante, I mean, you made the the point to some folks on my team that you know we've seen some some bad police abuses. We've seen people getting beaten, but we haven't seen Russian police firing rubber bullets, uh, pepper spray, water cannons, things we've seen uh, used against American protesters. Frankly, uh, why do you think there is like wh- why do you think there's been that sort of relative restraint, and how worried are folks about potential uh, escalation? Uh- well, you know, you know, I've been covering these uh, mass parties in Russia for over a decade now. Uh, and although they always seem like pretty brutal uh, on, uh, 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 on pictures, 
they've never crossed the line between uh, simply beating uh, the crap out of people with truncheons and actually, uh, you know, attacking them with uh, uh, with water cannons or rubber bullets. That's never happened in the history of uh, in, in the history of Russia. Uh, but there's the, 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 this. Here's the situation. There is no room uh, right now at this point where we are. There is no room for compromise. I don't see. Uh, I don't see any outcome where the state, where for example, Navalny supporters apply for a permit and the and, and the state says, okay, sure, because in the past that's happened. You know, the, in the past mm-hmm. they would try to uh, kind of dampen uh, or tone down uh, uh, the escalation by giving some concessions. Like, for example, sure, we'll give you that square to demonstrate as long as you do it peacefully. And yeah, sure, everybody does, uh, comes for a peaceful demonstration, demonstrates, and then another week, and then another week, and then uh, week after week, the, the protest just whittles down. And the, uh, uh, for example, at the first... Uh, at one of the uh, rallies in 2011, there were like, hundreds of thousands of people. But now, weeks after weeks after weeks, only uh, then only dozens of thousands turned up, and then it's hundreds of people. So that mm-hmm. was that was one strategy of whittling down uh, the uh, uh, people's motivation and commitment to protest, and that's a pretty effective strategy. But we are past that point. Uh, so there's little, very little room for compromise because now there there can be you know you know you can negotiate with an enemy. That Navalny was in the in the eyes of the Kremlin a few years ago, but not with a traitor. Hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, so uh, this, the state cannot back down, and it cannot allow peaceful demonstrations because it, if, uh, uh, in its own eyes, it will be seen as weak, uh, as uh, given in. Uh, right. Uh, and it uh, they cannot do that in case of Navalny. Right. Maybe if it if it were someone else, probably yeah. But right. also, there is not much room uh, to go in the other direction, because uh, uh, if they do Im- uh, if they do engage the uh, the uh, uh, demonstrations with water cannons and rubber bullets and tear gas, which we do know for certain that they have in their stock, because we can so there 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 have been some investigations before, and you can look at the, uh, for example, you can look at state procurement contracts, and you can see that they have an ample supply. Of and water cannons and uh, uh, and tear gas and those subsonic things that make you puke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so they have all that, uh, right? And they just haven't used it. Yeah, uh, but uh, doing that will it would it would cross uh, a line, a point of no return, where. Uh, the violence uh, at these demonstrations will be now most significantly more uh, will carry a, a lot more risk for the demonstrators than it does now. Uh, but I, I have no, I, I don't have any, uh, a definite answer to you why it's never been why all this firepower has never been employed before. Uh, but my um, kind of educated guess uh, is that. Uh, those images of uh, protesters in Germany and Italy and the United States uh, being pepper sprayed at short uh, uh, at with rubber bullets that uh, you know gouge eyes and uh, 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 do some pretty serious irreparable damage to people's bodies. Uh, the imagery is uh, has been used for uh, for. Well, for the entirety of Putin's term, basically, I've covered these demonstrations from year two thousand, and uh, uh, it's always been an argument in in, in a state propaganda. Like we're going easy on you guys, unlike those right, uh, to... unlike those Americans. 
Right, right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, he has a point in that specific yeah, case. Sure. But once you cross that line, you lose right. that. You you lose that high moral ground. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. High moral ground in, in air quotes. Exactly. I agree. Um, so, you know, you mentioned this earlier. Well, when Navalny got back to, to Russia, actually, when he was in prison, his team released this hour and a half long video alleging that Vladimir Putin has built a palace that cost a billion dollars paid for in bribes by people close to him. Um, I've seen some estimates, including in your op-ed, that the video has been viewed over 100 million times. An aide to Navalny said Putin, quote, could not ignore what the whole country is discussing, which is why he uh, responded to these charges on the record today. Is there any way to quantify that? Like, do you think it's true that this video about the palace was dinner table conversation across Russia? And were you surprised that Putin actually commented on this story? Uh, yeah, the fact that he did actually come out to personally comment, uh, uh, to, to personally deny the allegations, and you can see how his uh, his legalistic brain works. I mean, he's he sees himself uh, as a plaintiff in a <laughs> in a in a court. <laughs> uh, what he said was literally, uh, "Not me or any of my of my closest relatives have anything to do with the palace," right. which is not what the uh, investigation claimed. It painstakingly right. described a network of intermediaries connected to Putin uh, via an ex- in- incredibly intricate network of uh, companies owned and sub-owned by different people who have at least some, some very remote but some degree of connection to Putin. And that's exactly, that's intentional. Right, right. <laughs> so nobody actually claimed that it was Putin's palace. Uh, right, it, right. It is, in, it is in fact, but not on paper. So they used uh, they so they dug up uh, incredible amounts of all the the paper trails that lead to to Putin and they and I actually missed a lot of spots and we're doing us and other uh, independent media in Russia are now very busy doing follow up investigations to uh, to that and sure it looks pretty much what it says I mean it's a, a lot mm-hmm. of you know uh, a massive paper trail leads to it's it's, it's not a Swiss bank account. It's a massive, massive palace. You cannot, right, you know, right. hard to hide. <laughs> so we are in a stage right now. So the first, the initial reaction from Putin's spokesman was, "I don't know anything about any palace. There is no palace." But like, guys, it, you can see it from space. You can literally see it from space. You can go on Google Maps and see. <laughs> <laughs> So, so has this been like dinner table conversation? Is this the thing everybody's talking about? I mean, all the uh, all the little details from, uh, from from these investigations are basically memes now, right? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and yeah. Of, yes, sure, it's uh, it's the talk of the town. I mean, <laughs> uh, so uh, back to Navalny for a second. I mean, I think a lot of listeners to this show, a lot of Americans have been understandably inspired by his courage uh, in the face of a regime that has tried to murder him, his fight against corruption. Those are seen as noble things. But, you know, I think you've made the point that doesn't mean that a Western audience would necessarily be thrilled by all of his views. My, my co-host on the show and I have talked a bit about uh, Navalny's nationalism, his position on Crimea, for example. But could you give a, a listeners a sense of sort of like what Navalny believes, maybe warts and all, some of the things that they might not necessarily think uh, are, are shared values. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, we have to establish the, a, a common um, uh, kind of measure here, uh, because by American and uh, to a lesser extent European uh, uh, 
in 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 this uh, in this American political um, uh, kind of framework, uh, what you would call uh, liberals in Russia, including Navalny, would probably be considered uh, right wing libertarians in the United States. Got it. Got yeah. It. So uh, Navalny is even further to the right in his views. Uh, and sure, uh, uh, he was, uh, you can safely call him far right uh, in the early stages of his career. And he would pretty much open about that. And uh, uh, he, you know, given a chance, several chances actually to publicly uh, retract his views, he never did. He actually doubled down on them. Uh, and it's it's not... You know, it's not—it's—it's it, it, it's not some secret, it's, or it's not some shameful past he's trying to uh, sweep under the rug. Right, uh, right. Yeah, he's pretty open about his beliefs, although he's uh, uh, very much toned them down in the recent years. You'll uh, never—you'll uh, never hear him uh, refer to uh, 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 to people from the uh, Muslim republics uh, uh, on Russia's fringes uh, uh, like he used to, like a de- decade ago. So because hmm. he understands as a politician uh, and not as a member of a fringe uh, right-wing movement, uh, I'm not sh- I don't know uh, if, he's, uh, if he's genuinely uh, uh, you know, evolved in his uh, political views or he's just being coy uh, so as not to alienate uh, a large, uh, uh, a large sw- uh, swath of his electorate uh, with a more uh, you know, internationalist and liberal uh, views. I do not know that, uh, but it's a fact yeah. that the, the, but it's a fact that he is much moderate in his rhetoric now. Uh, right. But uh, it, it's all uh, it's all legitimate points for a discussion. Where, uh, right. but the thing is that he's not being persecuted for his views. That's uh, he his views on immigration. Where he's uh, you know it's ironic because that uh, uh, Pu- Vladimir Putin is much more liberal than Navalny. In 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 many I didn't know that. in many political areas like immigration, for example, uh, huh. Navalny is much further to the to the right than Putin, and probably closer to Donald Trump in his use on immigration. I didn't know that. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. Uh, but I mean, maybe that's what makes him so dangerous, right? He can outflank Putin on the right and in other places on anti-corruption. Yeah, and a, uh, a couple of years ago, he uh, he also started courting the uh, uh, the left-wing audience by. Uh, promoting, for example, labor unions. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of, uh, it's de- he's definitely a populist. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, he also, he has, uh, uh, he, he's courting both the right wing, the centrist and leftist audience. That is Got true. It. Got it. But the thing is that yeah. he's not being persecuted for any of those views. None of his uh, political positions on the left and the right or center matter. Uh, when uh, he is uh, uh, persecution by the state is concerned, he is right, only right. he is only being persecuted for his anti-corruption investigations. That that right. is the only thing that matters. So once uh, and I, I'm not his advocate, uh, not at all. And actually, uh, we don't always see eye to eye. And uh, uh, Medusa, uh, the the publication I work for, <laughs> is near the top of his naughty list. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, because okay. we, we've called him out in the past. I mean, it's, right, uh, right. Uh, we're not his allies. Uh, right. But what I want to what I want to say is that uh, it's clear that none of this matters at this point. So whenever he runs for office, and uh, he has some right wing points on his platform, 
Sure, let's debate that. Let's call him out on that. Uh, but we are not there yet, or if we'll yeah. ever be. <laughs> right. No, no, I understand. totally agree. Yeah. I just think it's important to sort of understand the whole person, even when, uh, so that they're not like lion eyes today, and then you feel like they let you down later because you didn't necessarily know everything about them. You know, I think we can, I think we can have uh, two ideas at the same time that maybe we disagree with him on immigration, but that his anti-corruption fight is incredibly brave and sort of talk about the whole person. My my last question for you is, uh, you may have noticed uh, that the United States just went through kind of a minor coup attempt by President Trump that uh, ended with a fascist mob attacking the U.S. Capitol. It's hard for me to imagine uh, an image, series of images that could do more to denigrate the United States, undercut democracy, undercut our system of government than seeing those marauding thugs, you know, running through the U.S. Senate looking like gigantic assholes. Were those images, were those events the focus of propaganda or just general news coverage? Like, how was that played in, across Russian media? You betcha. <laughs> I mean, sure, they, uh, uh, they used it. They used those images to the fullest extent possible. Uh, and of course, it's, uh, it's, of course, schizophrenic. Yeah. They're using the same arguments that they're uh, so. So they are now the the, the uh, what I'm seeing right now on Russian television and, and on uh, pro-government uh, uh, social media. Uh, they are portraying uh, Trump supporters and especially those uh, uh, who stormed the Capitol as uh, pro-democracy activists uh, who uh, are. <laughs> Uh, who are defending the right for free elections, and now those uh, now they are being unfairly persecuted. So this is I'm lit- I'm not I'm not kidding you. This is what this is what the Russian television is saying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like our Fox News. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, there are the, uh, Russian television uh, many uh, on many occasions. It's really out Fox Fox News. Uh, oh, uh, but yeah, it's not. Uh, but the, but there is no uh, but there is no real political position there. It's just. Uh, 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 they're using it as a uh, as uh, as as really just a a prop uh, to say. So you see, uh, you know, in uh, in 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 the states, they are you know people are fighting for their democracy, uh, and the state is persecuting them much much harshly uh, than we are dealing with malcontents back home. So this right. is going. This is again going back to this uh, kind of whataboutism uh, that is the, the pillar of uh, Russian state propaganda. So I don't right. think they really care about the uh, the capital or the, the fate of American democracy. They're just using uh, these events as as, uh, as, a, as a prop. Uh, so, um, but yeah, I mean, in all in all fairness, it's it did really look quite quite. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was bad. It was, it was bad, really yeah. bad. Time. Nothing really that's bad. like uh, I mean, I mean, uh, and it's given you know endless fodder for uh, for the same propaganda uh, to, uh, uh, and at the same time there's the uh, because they really have no internal logic uh, that you can argue with. So in the same breath they can uh, they can claim that these uh, protesters are you know. Uh, uh, this is a hard, this is a peaceful democracy movement that's uh, fighting for a free, free and fair election, and it's in the same breath they can say. So you see what instability, what political instability leads to. Do you want people right. in? Do you want armed people in Russia storming government buildings? You don't want right. that. No. Yeah. Yeah. You you want Father Putin keeping us all safe and everyone's yeah. warm and, and cozy. 
Oh uh, boy. Well, you know, reason number 1,550,000 to be embarrassed by uh, the events of January 6th. Uh, Alexi, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your great reporting. Where can folks find uh, all the work you're doing at Medusa if, if they want to read up more? Um, so the website is uh, Medusa with a Z, uh, M-E-D-U-Z-A dot I-O. And we have cool. an English version as well. Uh, so it's the same URL, medusa.io slash en. We have an English version. Great. and There's a link on the front page and you can see uh, there's a bunch of my reporting there as well in English. That's fantastic. And I think everybody should um, check it out and support independent uh, news reporting all over the planet because we need more of it. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thanks for your time today and really appreciate it. That was fun. Thanks again to Lexi for doing the show. Thanks to, you know, all the British press who asked Boris Johnson questions that he doesn't know how to answer. And uh, yeah, I don't know. That's all I got. Yeah, I, I, I got nothing. I can't I can't top the Boris Johnson. <laughs> I just we're, can't. we're out of words. Anyway, talk to you guys next yeah. week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats to keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com.